You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and the associated websites uh, One Step Off the Grid and The Driven. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. I am well, Giles. Trust all the listeners are well. Um, we've got a great interview this week and just a note that I'm uh, coming to you uh, from uh, Armidale uh, in the heart of the New England, one of the biggest REZs. Eventually, maybe, uh, in New South Wales. Well, that would all depend on Barnaby Joyce, wouldn't it? And uh, leading No, a, le- it, doesn't no? Depend on, it doesn't depend on Barnaby Joyce. Uh, Barnaby Joyce uh, faces opposition within New England as well as support. Uh, quite frankly. But, but Giles, look, we'll, let's talk about this after the interview. Yeah, no, let's do that. Look, we've got a great interview this week. Um, this is, uh, we're kind of recording this um, uh, on the weekend before you actually listen to this. A big announcement is scheduled, um, uh, what will have been made by the time you listen to this at the um, Clean Energy Summit in Sydney um, from Pollination, um, who's done uh, a landmark deal with some um, Aboriginal landowners for quite an ambitious green ammonia and green hydrogen project up in the north of Western Australia. So look, we had an, did an interview with them a couple of days ago. And Rob Grant, who's the head of projects at Pollination, and Sissy Gore-Birch, who is from the Balangara Aboriginal Corporation. Let's have a listen to our interview. So I'd uh, very much like to welcome Rob Grant, the uh, Head of Projects at Pollination. Uh, Rob, um, thanks for joining us. I don't think it's for the first time, but um, great to have you back on the uh, podcast. Thanks, Giles and David. Great to be back. And um, welcome to Sissy Gore-Birch, the Interim CEO of the Balangara Aboriginal Corporation. Um, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, look, it's a it's it's, it's a really interesting project for on, on on so many different levels. I mean, just the scale, the location, the agreement between investors and the um, traditional landowners, and um, I'm, I'm rather fancy. I rather imagine that this is going to be sort of super important as we move forward with these sorts of, sorts of scale of projects. But Rob, maybe we can just start with you. Just just give us just the sort of the the essence of this project because there's some really big. Figures here. There's a 900 megawatt solar farm. There's tapping into the hydro of the Ord River hydro scheme. There's plans for significant production of green ammonia. Um, tell us, in your words, what the big vision for this project is. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Well, look, it's um, yeah born out of the fact that uh, um, I actually started my career up in the northwest of WA in, in renewable energy with Pacific Hydro and. The Ord Hydro Power Station uh, has been a, an amazing supplier of renewable energy to the resources sector. Oh, for can, over can, I just, can I just interrupt you there? So you were one of the original people involved with that, that scheme right back at the start? Yeah, in the mid-90s. So that's actually where, you know, where Pacific Hydro and where I started my renewable energy career. So um, it's been, you know, on, uh, an asset that, uh, and, you know, working in the, in the East Kimberley has been something that's... Uh, been constant through my career and the fact that um, the uh, energy from Lake Argyle uh, and through the Ord Hydro Power Station is now uh, available 
for reutilisation in a project like this um, is you know, fantastic because having served um, Rio Tinto and Argyle Diamond Mine for 20 years, uh, the repurposing of it to be able to now lean into the next phase of the renewable energy um, story and particularly the production of green hydrogen is very exciting. But now we can also combine that with you know, the amazing solar resource in that part of the country. It's sort of the second highest solar resource intensity in uh, Australia. And, and probably most importantly, what you know was very clear to us and particularly to myself as we joined, as I joined Pollination, was that we need to be bringing about this clean energy transformation for Australia in a different way in terms of engagement and partnership with First Nations groups uh, than has historically been done through the resources sector. And we're not really going to be able to achieve our net zero and Paris commitments unless we do uh, engagement and partnership with First Nations group differently. Uh, and they hold the key really for us to be able to, uh, you know, not only help in the decarbonisation of the Australian economy, but uh, by bringing their land, country and culture to, uh, to helping the rest of the world as well as we you know, take advantage of the very comp significant comparative advantage Australia has in mm. the low cost production of renewable energy. Well, maybe we can dive into some of the details of the scheme um, in a minute. But Sissy, maybe um, give the platform to you. Um, why is this such a landmark agreement? Uh, I mean, this, this project is very much in its early stages, but it seems to be proper and appropriate that um, it's sort of looking to, to, to enter discussions and deals and relationships and, and, and now project ownership um, with the landowners there. So, so tell us what's happening from your perspective and, and, and why it's so important. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, this project is really um, an opportunity to highlight the importance of uh, partnerships coming together and neighbouring native title holders, because this is an opportunity where we can actually showcase that we are able to work together on a shared project and an agreement to be able to look at the bigger outcomes, not only just for traditional owners, but I guess for the rest of the nation and rest, rest of the world, because the things that we're thinking about is you know, really bettering the, the lives of our people who really um, haven't really benefited in the past through these big projects around Australia. And I think the importance of actually leading the conversations in this space and pollination allowing us and other partners to be able to be at the head, to be able to lead the conversations in regards to what we think that is important with this project, but also having the team behind us to support us in, in allowing us to um, really think outside the box on what we want to try and achieve through this project because, yeah, Rob's been around for a long time in this space and, you know, traditional owners have been here for a very long time and given this opportunity now to be at the table has really allowed us to be able to take this space and to be able to drive the change that we want. So where have where, where sort of project developers got these things wrong in the past or even particularly in the present now? And, and, and is, it the, um, is it the equity partnership that's important to you or is it the fact that you've got the shared ownership that allows you to sort of create and forge, you know, the sort of the direction of the project and how that can best sort of um, best, uh, um, you know, respond to the needs of the, of the traditional landowners? Well, I think when you look at the um, the past histories of what is you know what decisions have come about before native title, Aboriginal people weren't really at the table at all. Um, now we have native title. This has given us an opportunity to be at the table to make some decisions on what we want on country. And through this process with um, pollination, I think it's really you know 
given us the and really empowered the process for us to be able to believe that we can do this and we don't need certain partners who don't believe in us who don't value us who don't align with us and i think that's a really important thing is really finding partners who align with our values and really looking at driving that change for the betterment of our people um uh, there's a lot of things that go into making a successful project and I certainly agree very strongly that a strong consortium, to use a more traditional term, uh, is, is incredibly important and the people that go into it are also very important, particularly when a, a project wants to make hydrogen uh, and ammonia, which where the economics of it are still uh, you know, speculative, frankly. Uh, and this is a big project. I was interested to note that um, Anton Rona. Uh, the CEO of ASIN, who was uh, on this podcast uh, some weeks ago and did an excellent job talking about a project right near here at Urala, where I am today in Armidale, uh, has resigned to take up a, a special role at um, at a First Nations project. Uh, just I mean, he knows a lot about solar. It's not you don't have anything to do with him, do you? No, I don't. Uh, that's great. Uh, can can you tell me then about the let's I mean uh, rather than to, how should I ask about the the revenue and 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 the um, and uh, the capital funding of this? Uh, I might ask what what's the capital budget do you think of this entire project? Uh, look, Dave. I suppose just talk about the key elements of it. It's really um, you know as you've talked about on the economics of hydrogen. It's really important in the early years whilst electrolyzer pricing is high uh, and is still at the beginning of the learning curve and the manufacturing economies of scale curve that you can fully utilize um, as much existing infrastructure as possible that you don't have to build large-scale desalination and you don't have to build large-scale new export or port facilities as part of the project infrastructure. Uh, it is also important that the energy that you need for the carrier product, uh, particularly you know, if it's ammonia um, or, or other, that needs to run 24-7, uh, that that energy is not being uh, backed up by, again, another high cost element of the energy mix at the moment, which is batteries. So that is the beauty of the Ord Hydro scheme is that you're able to, <clears throat> and the, this, this entire project, is you're able to procure both the variable and firm energy you know, at um, at a price that you can't currently buy in the NEM or could back up with batteries. And that's really the, the key element of it. And then, you know, the rest of it is similar to other uh, project economics um, in the market currently. So that also allows us to get to market uh, more quickly than possible because you've got far less infrastructure to build. So you've got the solar farm, you've got the electrolysis, but you have got, uh, you know, no desalination, no port infrastructure to build. I hear all that, uh, Rob, um, but, you know, uh, we could dance around this, but uh, I guess, uh, in, in your opinion, what, um, I don't know, what's a commonly quoted number for green ammonia as, 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 as a cost? And I don't even know off the top of my head what actually conventional ammonia costs. Could you just mention those two numbers? Sure. Must, uh, I, can yeah, look, no, I should have looked them up. So, look, depending on the price of the input gas for um, the production of ammonia, you know, it can go from uh, sort of five, six hundred US dollars per ton in times when gas is, you know, three to seven dollars a gigajoule, um, 
or it can be $1,400 a tonne when gas is at sort of Ukraine war prices. So that's, it has been very volatile over the last 18 months. So it, it's a bit unclear exactly what the benchmark is for green ammonia. There isn't a, yet, you know, isn't a market yet in it, uh, and particularly for a project like this, which is actually you know, temporarily matched uh, electrons and molecules. But the overall project cost, you know, to get to that as well, you know, you're looking at a thousand megawatt solar farm. Or that's um, you know going to be at least a billion and a half, and it's similar for the process engineering and, and other linear infrastructure. So, you know, probably in the order of around three billion dollars, something like that, based on the scoping studies that we've done to date. Uh, and we need to be aiming, you know, we think to be producing green hydrogen and ammonia or green ammonia, you know, at less than thousand dollars a ton to be competitive. With what you know is else, what else is out there? Uh, particularly that those projects supported by the IRA um, out of the US. Yes, and, and I'll hand back to Giles in just a second. Um, I, I think you're optimistic on the capital costs, but uh, and you might just mention in your answer about what the capacity factor of solar up is up there, which I'm sure is fantastic. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I guess, have you had any indications of interest from anyone that they, I know at this incredibly early stage, of someone that might actually buy the ammonia at the numbers you're talking about? Yeah, so the, the, the project is, uh, you know, in a sense, customer-led that um, the opportunity is, is early in the sense that we've done scoping and we're moving into feasibility now. Uh, the whole point of the project model is to enable that co-decision and co-design to take place at this uh, feasibility stage, and then that should be, you know, a great way to be de-risking and uh, pulling schedule forward. So the under, you know, the underpinning thesis is, you know, if there is going to be a green ammonia and green hydrogen market globally, then Australia will have a comparative advantage in the reduction of that uh, low-cost um, hydrogen and ammonia, and this will be first to market because of the way that it's structured from a um, ownership point of view and the uh, availability of existing infrastructure and then the, the, the issues of whether we've got to compete with the US through the IRA or now with the hydrogen head start hopefully helping a little bit uh, will be the economics will play out during the feasibility we, we totally acknowledge that and then that then the strong interest is you know from probably from uh, the strong interest is from North Asia and uh, Southeast Asia at this stage even though it would eligible would be eligible for the EU market being temporally matched uh, electrons and molecules. Mm. I, I wouldn't mind just sort of going through just some of the numbers then. So you're talking about a 900 megawatt solar farm. Um, what's the capacity of the Ord River Hydro um, project? It's 30 megawatts. Uh, mm -hmm. And you think that, and that's significant enough to sort of what balance out the sort of the variations and output in, in solar or, or how do you how do you imagine it? Look, I mean, typically, you know, typically when you think you know, most developers would go and say, well, look, how much land they start with the land end and how much solar can we put on that land? And then that produces an amount of hydrogen and then uh, you need to work up your process engineering uh, to be able to then, uh, you know, get an output number of ammonia <clears throat> and then you work out the the energy needed to support that ammonia plant. So we've come at it the other way. We said, look, there's 20 megawatts of power available now that Argyle Diamond Mine is closed. So how much ammonia could you produce from that 20 megawatts running 24-7? And that's about um, <clears throat> around 250,000 tonnes per annum. Uh, how much hydrogen do you need to produce that ammonia? That's about 50,000 tonnes of hydrogen per year. And how much solar energy running at about 29% capacity factor based on the scoping study to date? 
um, how much solar you need to produce that 50,000 tonnes of hydrogen, and that's in the order of you know, 900 to 1,000 megawatts. And then they'll have the, you know, the hydro project only supporting the baseload demand for the ammonia and the hydrogen um, being produced by the solar. Uh, and then we store the hydrogen uh, produced during the daytime in a pipeline, which is both a storage vessel and a transmission vessel. And that moves the hydrogen from the solar farm in Kununurra through to the ammonia production in Wyndham. Okay, and, and so whereabouts? So you mentioned the solar farm in Kununurra. Um, whereabouts on on whose lands? On what sort of land will that be built? So the solar farm will be based on a piece of freehold land owned by the MG Corporation. So, you know, just to uh, importantly mention the other partners in the project. So Sissi is here representing Ballangara Corporation, which is the um, the traditional owner corporation for the Wyndham Port area. Uh, MG Corporation is the traditional owner group for the Kununurra area. And our, th and our third partner um, is the Kimberley Land Council, who represent all the prescribed body corporates across the Kimberley. Um, <coughs> so the solar farm, yes, based on MG Corporation freehold land, and then transmitted across uh, initially MG Corporation, then Ballangara land to Wyndham. Right. And just a couple of other small questions just to clarify, then I want to get back to, to uh, got a couple of questions for Sissy. The, um, you mentioned the Hydrogen Head Start program. Are you far enough advanced to sort of put an application for that or is that a bit too early for you? Well, it, I mean, it, the program itself is in consult consultation phase, so we'll definitely be participating in the consultation process and then out of that um, we'll see when you know when the process action applications actually kick off. Um, so look, we would like to think that uh, you know we are going to be competitive in that, and with the level of interest for offtake, uh, you know, be able to put in a a competitive bid as what looks to be a reverse auction process for this um, production tax credit. Right. Yeah. And 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 the and, and the and the potential investors. I mean, you've talked about sort of North North Asian offtakers. Um, might they be a logical investor in this scheme in the same way we've seen LNG plants basically sort of funded by by some of the big customers? Do you imagine that being the same sort of um, arrangement that you might see in this project and indeed the, in this industry? Yeah. Look, I certainly think that the you know I mean we we've set ourselves up as a development vehicle so that it's a hundred percent you know owned by uh, the three partners and pollination um, for the purpose of being able to bring a project that has a fully wrapped feasibility and development process that includes all the engineering, all the environmental approvals and all the land use agreements and the um, land uh, lease agreements uh, as a package and that's quite differentiated from what would normally happen in Western Australia with the resources project. I mean typically the land use agreements get left right until the end and um, you know it's quite long and you know often quite distributive negotiation processes. So um, that's, you know, we believe going to be very attractive to the both off-taker and investor market. And yes, the, you know, the likely off-taker will also be an investor, probably at the process end. It's not necessarily clear that the, you know, the, the ammonia off-takers are the best owners or the lowest cost of capital for the solar plant. So there might be a mix of asset ownership between the, you know, the low cost solar cost of capital and the, uh, and the process engineering uh, strategic investors. Uh, could someone talk a little bit about uh, the um, uh, the developer sort of uh, 
ownership structure, it's a partnership, uh, and then uh, presumably you will sell down the interest in the project one way or another to raise the, uh, as, the, as the capital requirements grow. And then do you plan to have a, a carried interest or a royalty? I mean, how will there be an in, enduring benefit for the First Nations peoples uh, that are involved in this, for instance? Well, look, I'll, I'll let Sissy speak to it for you know for the for the traditional owner groups, but yeah, in, in principle, Dave, that's how it's likely to to play out. I mean, we are uh, maintaining economic independence during this feasibility phase to be able to bring that you know co-design and co-decision making process to to a close, so that we can put this um, uh, project development outcomes uh, with the project economics. Uh, to the market before we start the feed and the, the, the final engineering stage. The intention would then to be maintain um, as much economic interest in the project as possible for all of the partners of the, um, of the ACE partnership. And uh, you know, really what we're trying to do here is not just have the old sort of model of projects paying royalties to traditional owner groups, but the traditional owner groups actually having a balance sheet interest in projects. and so sort of goes back to that first um, experience I had in the East Kimberley, which is that was, you know, the Ord Hydro was post-Marbo, but pre-native title, and now we're in a sort of a, a post-native title phase where we're moving to hopefully the building of balance sheets of the traditional owner groups as investors in these projects, and rightly so, because um, yeah, even though the, you know, the prescribed body corps and traditional owner corporations may not have um, large sort of cash balance sheets, they are asset-rich. Uh, so we're trying to combine the best of the sort of the cash-rich strategic investors, but asset-poor with what we have in this partnership, which is asset-rich and uh, you're developing balance sheets of the TO groups. But but just to be clear, the equity groups right now, without uh, and I should ask Sissy, without but also even pollination, wouldn't be able to fund you know thirty five percent of the total equity require of the total capital requirement, which is the equity part of, the, of this project, without doing their own financing themselves. I mean, would they? That, no, that's that's correct. I mean, the, the point is, I mean, well, Pollination has an investment management group, um, but yes, I mean, the, and for a project of this scale, um, it's not. Uh, you know, each party needs to be participating in the part that it brings a strategic interest. So yes, you know, it's clear that having an operator and a, and a, and a strategic partner in the production of ammonia um, will make far, you know, makes far more sense both from a capital and an industrial point of view than, uh, than you know, the partnership as it currently stands. So yes, I mean, this is the development vehicle that will bring what we believe is a very high quality and fast and low risk project to market. I'm wondering if we can ask Sissy, um, what, what does success in this project look like to the Ballangara Corporation and the other landowners? I mean, that's a big question. I mean, the success, I think it is successful now. I think um, the project in allowing us to be at the table to be a part of these conversations because, as I've mentioned before, we've never been a part of these conversations. So we'd be a part of parts of these conversations and usually at the end when there's a sign-off, but without any knowledge or understanding or experience with the whole process. So I think understanding from the start to where we are now, looking at that co-design and co-decision-making process, you know, it is a success already because we are, it is a different model. It's thinking outside the box. It's allowing us to be able to showcase that we, you know, can get partners outside the 
the uh, the usual pattern of um, decision making and investors and people who are really wanting to jump on board. So, I mean, we're we're still in that trial sort of uh, consultation process, but you know, being a part of the co design and the co decision process is already a success for us. But success at the end is not only just a monetary um, value, but it's more about the empowerment and the building the capabilities and capacities of our people being ready before the project comes about. So we are undertaking different demographic surveys with our people to look at, um, making sure that we are prepping and being ready for the project when it does come, that we have people with skill sets that are able and capable of running their own businesses, being employed in the industry, looking at you know training and trainers and looking at partnering with other uh, service providers to be able to look at developing uh, Balangara people to be in a better position and growing that wealth. Um, it is about building on our community. Wyndham is only, you know, Wyndham is a very sleepy town and looking at, you know, how do we actually invest in the bigger picture of thinking. Success is around addressing that, some of those social issues around housing, around education, around, the you know, the health services um, really developing, you know, our young people through this around employment opportunities. So it's a bigger project. So it's not just about the the green hydrogen. It's not just about the zero <coughs> zero emissions. It's and it's not just about addressing what the Western system is pulling and bringing upon us. It's more about what else can we actually get out of this to be able to utilize the systems and these decisions to be able to better our people, you know, in the long run. And that's where success is, because sometimes I think when these bigger conversations are happening, we don't really think about the deeper meaning of life and what it actually means and how does it actually impact in our, on our people. We've seen what royalties have done for our people. It doesn't actually bring any any value back into the community. It doesn't increase the health and well-being of our people. It doesn't increase um, appropriate housing um, and uh, suitable, sustainable housing. You know, this this is where I think this project will allow us to be able to be part of decisions around how do we develop appropriate sustainable housing now that we are looking at uh, the climate and the change of rising um, temperatures. You know, you look at the houses in the Kimberley region today, they are definitely not appropriate to be living in um, if we if the temperatures are rising. So I think being around that space to really allow us to really think deep and and to bring in those partners who value the way we're thinking because not a lot of people are thinking in this space right now about that. Hmm. And, and having been invited to the table by Corporate Australia, finally, um, are you liking what you're seeing?
Rob, maybe it's an opportunity to throw that back to you. Is corporate Australia ready to think differently about these projects? Well, I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any uh, choice really. I mean, I think the last Net Zero Australia report that you know, Melbourne Uni did and released, or you know, released a few months ago and updated this week, shows that you know, 45, you know, the, all of the energy that we need uh, to decarbonise our own economy and that of the you know the world using our comparative advantage in low cost renewables sits you know 45 percent of that sits on the indigenous estate, you know, exclusive native title. So we just we just won't get there quick enough unless. First Nations group are bringing their country and their culture to the market. We can't have, we can't continue this model of where developers and resource companies or you know, renewable energy developers, uh, you know, just go to the traditional owner group as part of it as a stakeholder. You know, we need to be able to amplify this model to allow all of the First Nations groups in the Kimberley and the rest of Western Australia, particularly, uh, to bring to think about how would they bring their country to the market. Is it suitable for renewables? Is it uh, has it got areas which would be you know suitable for very large scale production of renewable energy? And then there's a whole lot of other you know as David's rightly pointed out, there's a whole lot of other project and development and economic related factors that need to play into that. Um, but this is uh, this is just not this is not just the right thing to do. It's not the just you know not just the just thing to do, but it just makes good economic and commercial sense. And it's just it's it's a, it and. The renewable energy industry has been progressive in its thinking over the last 25 years and it has brought everybody on the right journey to put us on the right side of history finally. And this is really the last piece of that puzzle that we're going to have to have an integrated uh, approach to delivering our 2050 targets with the First Nations groups. I mean, otherwise we just won't get there. Sorry, Dave, I just wanted to add to that. I mean, with Ballangara, so being a part of the... um the carbon project, so Ballangar Aboriginal Corporation with a number of other um, uh, corporations across northern Kimberley have been involved with the carbon abatement project for some time. And we've, we've already been contributing to lowering the emissions and, you know, we've already benefited from actually this economic um, opportunity to be able to utilise our land in a way that we're contributing to the, the Australian um, emissions project, but also, you know, the, the worldwide sort of emissions. Um, but, you know, having that opportunity that there is a bigger picture happening. And I think being in that space already where we're contributing to society in a way that's effective, but also the effective where we can't actually see, but effective where we can actually see the on-ground work with um, right way burning methods and I think through this project now with the hydrogen um, and transferring it over to ammonia I think you know it's still hidden to us but I think the economic development that comes from that opportunity we'll be able to see once we once our people get on board because again this is a new initiative this is a new conversation this is a new project that a lot of our people haven't been engaged with at that level and I think if we as traditional owners can actually showcase that these things are possible, you know, we can actually make a huge difference in our industry, but also in the economic development decisions in our region, because traditional owners haven't really been engaged with the economic development in our region. And I think about time now, it's about 99% of native title land has been given back to traditional owners. Yeah. So, you know, my sisters are, uh, used to teach sociology and uh, in some ways, I see this as a social license issue, no different in uh, concept to other social licenses like building transmission near farmers. 
Uh, and in some ways, I think being First Nations people, you have an advantage that in a sense you, you can perhaps act as you know, uh, a united group rather than uh, a set of individuals. But that's all to be seen because in the end, ammonia has its own environmental issues I just mentioned. But Rob, could you just talk about the timeline, the milestones or kilometre stones or whatever the right word is that we're going to use for this project for the next year or two? Sure, David. So we've, um, as I say, we're in, in the feasibility phase at the moment, which is probably 12 or you know, 12 to 18 months, and that's uh, the usual uh, environmental and environmental surveys uh, getting ready for the EIS um, and engineering and various other approvals. Uh, they would be then you know, looking to bring in the um, large scale of strategic industrial investors for the feed stage, and that would be another 12 months. Uh, and so, you know, early, <clears throat> uh, sort of, you know, end of 25 would probably be the earliest to be able to look at FID. Uh, and we're really aiming to be able to have cargoes of green ammonia between 2028 and 2030, which is sort of the guidance given by, um, you know, Japan Inc. and Singapore Inc. as when they are needing to have, you know, these, these cargoes flowing to, you know, whether it be for co-firing in coal-fired generation or, um, you know, for bunkering of ammonia fuel for, for shipping out of Singapore. So, yeah, I mean, that's really the, the, the long time frame that we're, we're working towards and, and meeting customer expectations. And I'll just ask one other question quickly, um, and that's really on the solar, which is a distinct part of the project. Is there an alternative use for the solar if, if ammonia turns out not necessarily to be uh, economic at the time you're ready to develop the solar? Uh, well, look, the carrier product for the green hydrogen, well, I mean, I think, you know, just quick, briefly on ammonia, yes, I mean, the, the nature impacts and the biodiversity impacts of, you know, large-scale use of fertiliser uh, is something that we, you know, we feel passionately about as well at, at pollination. But, you know, there is um, you know, a very large demand for ammonia currently, and that ammonia is all produced from fossil fuels, and it does need to be decarbonised before we start to you know, properly move to regenerative farming. So, you know, in the first phase, there will be, you know, the most likely case will be that uh, this hydrogen is converted to uh, to ammonia, uh, and progressively we will decarbonise that ammonia value chain. Um, in terms of other uses for the hydrogen from that solar, uh, and it's, you know, this is the first phase of this project because it's just utilising existing infrastructure. Um, but there's you know abundant resource there um, that would depend on the customer again at, you know whether it's going to uh, uh, whether it's going to liquefaction later on down the track or you know, other things that might come through technology breakthroughs such as you know direct air capture and the like but uh, at this stage we are, we're only producing and looking to produce a product that's uh, could clear the market um, currently and, and just one final quick question from me uh, what sort of electrolyzer are we um, talking about are we 50 100 i can't even I don't have the magic formula in my head about um, how much solar and how much hydrogen you're going to produce and how big the electrolyzer needs to be. About 850 megawatts. That's a big one. <laughs> That's a very big one. Okay. Well, look, um, good luck with the project, um, Rob and, and, and Sissy. And um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast and watch the fascinating. And um, one might expect a, um, a landmark project. So thank you both very much for joining the podcast great pleasure thanks very much thank you yeah thanks for me too and that was uh, rob grant from uh, pollination and um sissy gore birch from 
the Balangara Aboriginal Corporation. Um, look, these are important deals to strike, David, uh, because as they point out, a lot of these sort of mega developments that uh, we keep on hearing about but don't yet see developed will be uh, happening on Aboriginal lands. Um, and um, I guess this is probably about as credible as any other project in terms of sort of technology and, and, and markets. But um, I guess that's a wait and see. Nothing too exciting about a solar uh, uh, plant in terms of new technology, but what interests me is the uh, sociology of it, the social license, you know, uh, the fact that if you do it the right way, you can build your social license uh, with the landowners and custodians right at the beginning of the process instead of having to come along when you're halfway through, as seems to be the case in most of the rest of Australia, and where it seems to me social licence and it is an issue, but uh, is one that almost whipped out of all proportion uh, to the idea that not in my backyard uh, is, is, is more important than saving the planet. Uh, which is kind of the way I see it, you know. Uh, well, that's right. Well, that brings us back to Barnaby, doesn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm just going to need to correct myself there. I think I said Sissy Gorch, but it's actually Gore Birch. So um, apologies there. I just want to make that absolutely clear. But um, look, you, you did mention Barnaby at the start, and I raised him. But no, I mentioned Barnaby, and you said, no, no, you don't even mention that man. But what is happening up in New England? Just very briefly. I mean, he, make, he makes headlines, but um, I don't know. Well, look, I think what's actually happened is that um, uh, ASIN has built a 900 megawatt uh, solar farm or is in the process of building it and it's open stage one and uh, there's another solar farm up here and a wind farm up here and there are proposals to build new wind farms. But Giles, you and I have seen uh, this week that the Vales Point uh, coal closure official date has been pushed back. And yes. there were stories in, in, mag in things that call themselves newspapers like the Daily Telegraph uh, that, that about keeping a roaring, you know, getting paid to stay open uh, longer. And the problem is that um, this can happen uh, uh, because of economics, right? The coal stations, are, are, roaring will eventually have to close around 2032 uh, because its ash dam will be full unless they build a new one, which they won't. So that's kind of a hard closure. I'm actually not sure what the technical issue around Vale's Point, but I imagine it can keep going a long time. I think it's well known by now that when Vale's Point is eventually closed, the land will be handed back to the New South Wales government uh, for various reasons. Uh, and I would say that Vale's Point is extremely well managed uh, by a team that's been there for a long time, so they know what they're doing. The point I want to make is that these coal-fired stations are not going to close now because the economics are terrific. Not only did we see um, AGL essentially doubling its profit forecast for 2024, most of nearly all of that increase is coming from coal generation, uh, but if you look at it, the New South Wales government has basically taken in the short term the risk out of uh, buying coal by fixing the maximum price at the coal mine at 125 uh, dollars Aussie for 5,500 gigajoule tonne. Uh, that, that's not a, a cheap price, but it's in line with the, the world market at the moment. Uh, and yet the electricity price is over $113 a megawatt hour for 2024. So these coal plants are, are going to be, you know, I, I can see Araring making, I don't know, $400 million of EBITDA just to pluck a number out of the air. And Vale's Point is smaller, but uh, it might make, I don't know, half as much as that. So no one's going to close while that's going on. And uh, the only thing that's going to change that uh, is new supply, right? New supply. Well, and we're not uh, seeing much of that, unfortunately. No, there are only 1,700 uh, megawatts of wind in New South Wales that has had a EIS determined. 
uh, that's uh, Angular, uh, owned by CWP, which was going to get started but seems to have stopped since Andrew Forrest took it over. Uh, and there's one other big wind farm, a Liverpool range owned by Tilt, uh, that's just been reconfigured a bit, but which could start. All the rest are still going through the process. So, uh, other than, you can get some more solar plants for sure, I suppose, but and um, and we might get some more imports from Victoria and Queensland when some of the constraints like uh, interconnect are, are actually built and Humlink if it ever is. Um, but other than that, kind of, there's a lot of market power to the coal generators. So that's that's a key thing to understand. Yeah, and um, as we revealed um, earlier on this week, the spate of um, wind farm approvals in New South Wales are just basically dried to a trickle. Only two projects approved in the last four years. Um, and um, uh, there's a lot of consternation around about the spate of approvals and how that's done. Um, the Department of Planning tried to sort of defend itself last week, saying it's, um, it's, it's planning applications are treated in record time. But I think one of the problems is this actually how, how you actually get a wind farm to the formal planning process. Because because there's kind of what's called a soft lodgement process, which ends up causing huge amounts of delays. And, and this, David, probably in, in the state which actually needs to paddle the fastest, because it's the state with the biggest coal fleet in the country. Um, they should be retiring within 10 years. As you say, they've got a hard, um, it's got a hard um, end because of, you know, ash dams and other considerations. And Vales Point will be 54 years old, I think, and under the new closure date, um, which makes you wonder exactly how it's going to cope. Um, yet we're just not going for Fast enough. I mean, there are there are auctions being held at the moment for new capacity and some in some long long duration storage. And I rather imagine we're going to see more eight hour batteries um, being produced in the next auction. Um, we're going to see more yeah, wind. But, but and the solar. batteries have got to be charged from something, Giles. Right? If you're not producing, I mean, how do you make a coal station uneconomic? Well, the first way is with solar. You just have so much solar in the middle of the day that electricity prices are negative, right? And, and the coal generation has to keep running. So it has to uh, run at a spot loss in the middle of the day and then you hope that the guy I mean this can't write a uh, baseload contract that's sort of uh, where we forget about that and then you need more and then you can either charge a battery or hopefully you have some wind generation uh, or something that's going to cut in around dinner time and overnight when the guys would be hoping to make back uh, those losses of um, variable contribution margin that they are likely to occur in the middle of the day. That's what you want to do, um, but we're not there right now. No, no, we're not. Um, David, now you've got something to say about aluminium. Um, the, the floor is yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to observe uh, to our listeners a story you had, Giles, this uh, week, I think, about Arena has given, I think it's $100 million to one of the alumina uh, 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 refineries in Queensland. What uh, was that story? Yeah, no, that's um, um, yes. Yeah, so Arena is actually giving one third, I think, of the investment that's going to be in the Illumina um, in, in the Illumina project up in um, in Newcastle, I think. Yes. Uh, no, in Queensland. In Queensland. Sorry, <laughs> I think I'm getting confused because there was no, there was more Arena funding for uh, another project, a hydrogen project in, in Newcastle. So I am getting confused. Mm. But it was 110 million dollars, I think. Um, now I'm confused, but anyway. Well, let, let, me, let me keep talking. Australia produces about 7 million tonnes of alumina uh, a year. And alumina, you know, to make aluminium, uh, which uses 10% of Australia's electricity, uh, you, you need alumina. And to get the alumina, you make bauxite, right? Uh, so the bauxite's the raw material. And then you essentially boil the bauxite. 
uh, um, uh, to get rid of a lot of impurities, and then you do something called calcining it, which is heating it under low steam uh, to get rid of some more, and then you've got alumina and burn some stuff off, and then you, you send it off to the uh, aluminium smelter. That's, that's the general process, and we've been talking about aluminium for a long time. As I said, we produce 7 million tonnes of alumina, and guess what, Giles? That uses, according to an ARENA study, about 220 petajoules of gas, which is broadly equal to what New South Wales gas consumption used to be. And that's in West Australia and in Queensland. And so, as I said, you've got boilers. Now, the first thing that happens occurs to me is you could replace those boilers with electric boilers. Uh, but you'd need a lot of power because 220 um, uh, petajoules of gas, when you break it down, is about 40 or 50 terawatt hours of electricity, you know, so almost 20%, uh, 25% of Australia's uh, consumption. And about two-thirds of that goes into the boiler process and about a third of it goes into this calcining process, which is where the hydrogen comes in. If you happen to look in uh, now... The thing about the uh, aluminium refineries is that unlike an aluminium smelter, which has to run 24-7, 365, it needs, in the case of Tomago in Newcastle, it's 1,000 megawatts every half hour of the day, essentially, all, all year long. I mean, except for very brief periods. Otherwise, the aluminium pots freeze up uh, and, and you're, um, there's some uh, vernacular word for it that I, starts with F that I, that I won't use. <laughs> but, but refineries, Giles... Uh, can can you can turn the temperature down and just stop making it for a day or two and no one gives us stuff you know provided you make it up so they're very flexible and if you could somehow turn them up in the middle of the day when there was a huge amount of solar going on and had some easy way to store the process heat uh, which I, th I think is actually quite feasible technically these days then you could probably run them very hard in the in the middle of the day store all the solar energy uh, using solar energy, store the heat and, and use it at night. And if you happen to have a refinery right next to a smelter, maybe you could make the two of them work together and you might need something in Queensland's case like Barumba. But anyway, it's just all fantasy. Well, no, that's interesting stuff. And look, just to clarify, um, we were sort of vaguely right. Um, it is uh, arena funding of $33 million for a $111 million project. Um, I just got the state wrong. So as you said, it's Queensland, not um, New South Wales. And look, that's a fascinating thing. I mean, using um, aluminium uh, or alumina smelters, all of these refining processes, that's sort of kind of like big batteries. I mean, it's really sort of demand management. But I guess in the end, in, when it's sort of viewed from the grid perspective, it's probably amounts to the same thing. And it does make you question whether you need these massive projects. You know, the snowy two point zeros and the barumbas and everything else but um it kind of feels inevitable uh, because people just like big things um yeah. yes charles we do like big things but we also <laughs> like small things don't we <laughs> well we do <laughs> anyway david look um we'll probably just wrap it up there i think for this week there's nothing too else pressing um we'll come back with a wrap-up of the uh, clean energy summit um um, which is happening sort of around about the time that you'll be listening to this. And um, in our next episode, we'll do a wrap-up of that. Um, in the meantime, thanks to you. Um, thanks to uh, Rob and Sissy for uh, joining us um, earlier in the podcast um, for a fascinating talk about this sort of project um, in the north of Western Australia and, um, and, and some of the agreements that have been put into place. That's very important. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. And do have a listen to the latest episode of the in, uh, Solar Insiders podcast and the Driven podcast and a new electrification series that we've just launched this week. Also, um, some fantastic uh, podcasts 
podcast, uh, one including uh, Jan Razanow, uh, a European expert, and that's um, and, and under the rubric Switched On. It's a special subset of Renew Economy. It's a, um, a specific project about electrification, and there really is some great stuff, some great interviews on, on, um, on the podcast and some great articles as well. So um, do recommend you catch up with that. So look, thank you, David, and um, we'll catch up very soon, and um, that's it for now. Bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.